Hello, everybody. My name is Luke Thomas. This is episode 108 of the Promotional Malpractice Live Chat. Today is Wednesday, October 22nd, 2014. Thank you for joining me. I greatly appreciate it. Today on the live chat, we will discuss Cain Velasquez being out of UFC 180. What a devastating, devastating blow that is. All the implications. Now Mark Hunt filling in going for an interim title opposite Fabricio Verdum. The rest of that card mostly still intact. We'll get to that. Also, this Saturday, UFC 179 is here. I feel a little bit of a buzz about the main event, not so much about the rest of it, including the co-main event, but you know, Conor McGregor looming large makes things obviously a little bit more interesting. Kung Lee, the UFC middleweight, had his entire suspension rescinded before arbitration was set to take place. What does that mean? What are the implications about that? We'll break that down as well. And of course, whatever you want to talk about, your comments, your questions, frankly, your chat. Best way to get involved is on MMAfighting.com. You can also tweet me at SBNLukeThomas. You may email me as well, Luke.Thomas at SBNation.com. If you're on YouTube, I'll probably get to your um, gripes and smart-ass remarks after the fact, but not live. As you can see, Hala Madrid. I got my James Rodriguez official jersey on. They play today against Liverpool at 245. If you don't follow soccer, I feel for you. Um, and then, of course, they El Clasico, Saturday at noon. I'm going to be wearing the exact same jersey. I'm going to wash it today. I'm going to go out to a bar on Saturday in Washington, D.C., because soccer's a big thing here. I'm going to wear this jersey. And after Madrid wins against Barcelona, I'm going to fist fight every Barcelona fan in the bar. So there you go. Enjoy that. All right. <laughs> With that out of the way, oh, and by the way, of course, uh, today's episode, episode 108, of course, the Promotional Malpractice Live Chat, we've got Diet Dr. Pepper, which someone told me is caffeine-free, which is not true. It's got 41 milligrams. So there you go. You were wrong. When I open this, like I do there, that's your cue to let people know, get on Twitter, get on Reddit, get on Facebook, social media generally. Again, go to a bar with Barcelona fans, punch them in the face, let them know that this live chat is on, okay? With that out of the way, we shall begin. Let me pull my thing up. Jeez. Uh, and also, of course, subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, the whole nine yards. You have plenty of listing options. All right. To the top we go. Jesus. Uh, does Kane's injury damage UFC 180? Luke, with Kane Kain pulling out of UFC 180, how does this affect the event as a whole? I know Mark Hunt is a fan favorite. However, Kane was the main draw for this new market. Would, you, would like to hear your thoughts. And again, someone notes in the comments below that comment, quote, we aren't going to Mexico without Kane, said Dana White. Yeah, it hurts big. Heart impossible not to echo those sentiments. What a devastating turn of events for the Ultimate Fighting Championship. This card, UFC 180, for the Mexican equivalent will be somewhat similar to UFC 178. That is, initially a big headliner, a strong supporting cast, um, and then you lose that main event. You still get something worthy of watching, certainly. I think most of us would agree, absent the, the current context, Fabricio Verdun versus Mark Hunt is more than worth watching. But uh, it's the current context that makes it sort of like, oh, God, really. Um, but the rest of that card is still tailored to the rest of that Mexican market. And there's still really good fights on the card. Lausanne versus Sanchez. Um, 
uh, Gastelum versus Ellenberger, uh, Lamas versus Bermudez. So there's still really a lot to chew on there. It's still a good card. It's certainly the main card anyway. It's an important thing that they go to Mexico and put on this event. As you may recall, the gate's already sold out. So from a live event perspective, there's still a lot to enjoy. But a couple of things here. One, sort of ceremonially, this was supposed to be the coronation of not just Cain Velasquez as their Mexican star, but, um, you know, as this market, as the real linchpin of their future efforts. You know, they've had some issues in Singapore. It's been reported that they didn't make money on that uh, show led by Tarek Safadine. They haven't even entered mainland China yet. Uh, Japan's going okay, but I don't know that they've, they've revived the market to any sort of measurable extent. They haven't gone to South Korea yet. I think they will. I think that'll be a good market for them. But pointing out, you know, Germany has been a work in progress. They haven't gone to France or Italy yet. And they may go to all these places. I'm just pointing out Mexico is a little bit more hand in glove. And to me, you really have to wonder the frustration about Cain Velasquez. Um, I think only six fights in the last four years. Um, a champion like Pettis, like Weidman, who can't stay healthy. But I think it's more important than that. Cain Velasquez is lightning in an effing bottle, you guys. He is a lightning in a bottle. You have a Mexican-American who appeals to both people, speak Spanish enough anyway, not great, but enough, obviously is American, crosses two worlds, crosses three worlds, really, gets American white people um, and African Americans, gets Native, Native Mexicans, uh, and then gets sort of the Chicano nation in between. Uh, you know, and to get that as a heavyweight champion, which boxing can't ever seem to get, Look how long boxing's been around, and they don't have anybody like Cain Velasquez. Chris Ariola is about the closest you're going to get to that, and he ain't that. And they've caught lightning in the bottle, and they just cannot seem to get him to the places that he needs to be by really no fault of their own. You know, you guys know I'm critical of the UFC, I think, when they deserve it, but what are they supposed to do here? Cain Velasquez is the one who is responsible for managing his career and staying injury-free. And how much of that is just accidental? How much of that is just the biological frailty of it all? How much of that is mismanagement in his own training? We really don't know the answers to those questions. But what we do know is his injury rate is more than normal for champions, more than the average fighter in the UFC, I would humbly submit. And that has that is that is desperately impacting their efforts to turn the corner with him and to turn the corner with Mexico. Again, they did the Ultimate Fighter Latin America. That's gone great. I'm not suggesting things in Mexico are going poorly. Quite the opposite. But to really turn it over, to really get what they want out of it, and to get Cain Velasquez to be a bigger star. I mean, Cain Velasquez should be a huge star by, by now. I know when they put him on SportsCenter, he's unbelievably nubs. He's terrible in interviews on them. He has nothing compelling to say. and That's the truth, you know? And not everyone does. But... Because of, look, look at all these stars who have these national representations. GSP in Canada and certainly even closer French Canada. Conor McGregor. <clears throat> Conor McGregor in Ireland. You could point it out in other combat sports as well. When these guys put the nations on their back, and Anderson Silva and Machida to a lesser extent. When these guys put nations on their back, and Velasquez can do it across a multitude of nations. It, it, it transcends everything, and, they, and to lose him on this, it's not the end of the world. I'm sure they'll go back to Mexico and bring him if they can. I'm sure they won't go back to Mexico the next time without him. But pointing out that he cannot seem to get down there to really convert that market. A Cain Velasquez successful title defense in Mexico would be huge for Cain Velasquez, would be huge for attracting Latino fans in the United States, would be huge for making that Mexican market even bigger than it already is going to be. And you lose a lot of that. You lose a lot of that steam. You lose a lot of that momentum. Yet another coaching duo that won't fight 
uh, after being on the Ultimate Fighter together, it's devastating. It's devastating. And I just don't think after Cain Velasquez is gone from the sport and however many years that may be, when's the next time you're going to see a Mexican heavyweight champion? If boxing is any indication, it's going to be a long, long, long winter. A long winter. And that, I think, is kind of scary a little bit. Certainly if you're the UFC, you must be saying, my God, we just got to get these. You have to have a, a few of these major moments in his career. And beating Dos Santos the second and third time, beating Brock Lesnar, those were these critical moments in the turn of the screw. Um, and this was supposed to be another one. It's devastating. In terms of the numbers, someone's asking, what about the numbers for the pay-per-view? Again, I think people will leave that show with a really positive experience. I think it will help grow MMA and UFC in Mexico. And so in that sense, there's still a lot to be happy about. It's just a question of relative to what it was supposed to be, and particularly with Cain Velasquez, that's where you lose. I definitely think it'll impact pay-per-view. I think Cain Velasquez um, is a pay-per-view draw. I don't know that he's necessarily the most popular fighter in the world, but I think people, UFC heavyweight title, Cain Velasquez, or sort of something about that. The event was going to be promoted in Mexico, which makes it a little bit harder to, to do well on pay-per-view, but I would have said plus 300,000, certainly, um, and you lose that now. I think you go down to sub 300,000 for sure. You go into that 220, 240, maybe 260 range at most. All right. Cain Velasquez and Anthony Pettis haven't defended their belt once in 2014. John Jones, Chris Weidman, Johnny Hendricks, and Jose Aldo have defended uh, their belt only once so far. One has yet to keep in mind, or excuse me, one has to keep in mind that Weidman and Hendricks fought injured in their one title defense in 2014. Lorenzo Fertitta said in the Sports Business Journal, this year has been the most challenging year we've ever had. About 80% of the fights we wanted to put on got canceled for whatever reason. Injury, drug test, somebody had a baby, who knows. If it could happen, it happened in 2014. I can't wait to go to next year. Question, what makes Lorenzo think it's going to be any different next year or the year after that? I don't know. What an excellent question. Certainly we've seen some years momentum seems to gather one direction or the other. 2012? It was kind of like 2014 in that respect. 2013, things turned around. They had a number of really great fights that all the way came through. I mean, some of this feels like, whether there's evidence for it, but sort of intuitively it feels like it's somewhat cyclical. Maybe that's what he's banking off of. You have a bad year, you have a good year. You have a bad year, you have a good year. Things sort of align. MMA business seems to be feast or famine these days. Everyone's sort of ready to go. All the stars line up. All the fights are mostly happen. You know, there's a couple that don't work, but okay, they mostly happen. And then there's moments of this these long droughts in between. Um, I don't know why that is exactly. Part of it is, as we've seen, injury. Uh, part of it is the way calendars work out. Part of it is the way contenders emerge. There's sort of lots of different explanations for it. But to your point about what is it that we think is going to be different next year, I don't really know. And certainly I would be the first to admit the number of injuries this year has been abnormally uh, impactful. I'm the biggest believer in oversaturation. What I think a case like this shows you is that in UFC 180, injury is really the culprit here. Uh, there's no two ways about it. That card is pretty good. 
even as it stands today with Mark Hunt and Fabrizio Verdum at the top of it. I think we would all agree, look at that main card. That's a main card worth buying, I think, if you're a relatively moderate to even hardcore fight fan. There's, there's a lot, as I said before, a lot to chew on there. I personally feel like Kelvin Gastelum, Jake Ellenberger is arguably the most important fight of Jake Ellenberger's career. You know, if he can't beat Kelvin Gastelum, it's sort of it for him, I feel like, as a top contender. So, and then, and then now we have Kelvin Gastelum, who has sort of switched places with him, if he can get the job done. Um, but that main event appeal, which we know really is sort of the focal point of all advertising and promotional and media efforts, and really is the most important in terms of drawing the fan base, drawing pay-per-view buys, um, losing that is devastating. So I guess my point would be is what, what we've found, though, is that while there is a good card for the more engaged fight fan, once you lose the headliner, UFC does not have a ton of substitutes, right? Um, so, you know, I'm the first to say, well, they should be stacking cards and doing fewer of them. And I won't back off of that argument at all. However, uh, I am sympathetic to the fact, partially anyway, that even if you did get rid of the headliner, in this case, you lose Cain Velasquez, you substitute in Mark Hunt, you make an interim title fight, it really is not much of a substitute. Now, it's not as devastating. Uh, when I say not much of a substitute, I mean in terms of what you'll draw from pay-per-view, which is what this is. Now, again, that isn't to make the card bad. I think the card is still pretty good. It could be a lot worse if the matches uh, weren't what they are. They made an effort to stack the card, and so the card, again, still pretty good. But there's no doubt when 178 main, main event fell out, not once but twice, really. Well, well more so the second time. Um, that took a hit on pay-per-view, and this one's going to take a hit on pay-per-view. There's no doubt about that. But then sort of I would point to the fact that why haven't they had more stars? Why haven't they been able to make more stars? Injury, like the kind they have with Cain Velasquez, has to be certainly on the short list of reasons. But I would, I would submit to you that it's more than that. You know, um, I would submit to you that there's other things going on. And certainly I would also argue in, a, in, a, in an age where they're doing these fight pass shows, and trying to build markets that may not be ready to be built, um, and taking people off of cards and not putting them in more key positions, and then having a broadcast deal that sort of lowers your general uh, ability to be seen to about 700,000 people, that won't necessarily buoy your pay-per-view market. So when you lose one headliner, even if you substitute in another great fight, which, hey, Mark Hunt for Bruce Verdum is a great fight. Not a lot to complain about given your perspective. Um, but you have just this limited bandwidth of star power. And one, one removal of that, and it does a number on everything. There's really not a strong cast of characters that they can rely on beyond a certain level. Um, and the question is why. I would submit to you there's a lot of reasons, injury being one of them, but not the only one. Should the UFC implement interim titles uh, more often? The UFC has often said that each pay-per-view event should be headlined by a champion. Would introducing more interim title fights when champions are out for an extended period ease this issue? Interim titles are helpful only when you absolutely need them. They're only helpful when you absolutely need them. So in the case of Dominic Cruz, at some point you had to do something there, right? And now maybe with, with I'm not really opposed to the idea that Cain Velasquez is going to have to fight the interim champion when he comes back. I'm not really opposed to that idea at all. Um, but you want to avoid a situation with what boxing does. And there's lots of different things you can illustrate here, but I would point to a guy, and you may have seen him on various, uh, I want to say Pacquiao undercards, I can't even remember anymore, but maybe they're Mayweather cards. It's been so long. Um, 
Jorge Arce. Jorge Arce. Jorge Arce um, defended an interim title once. Defended the interim title. So won and then defended it four times. Defended an interim title four times. You want to avoid situations like that. Where you have an interim title. It's a different circumstance too. And they have more titles and so forth. But I just mean you want to avoid a situation where you have the, these moments where a guy is defending an interim title simply to hold position in a weight class while the other guy is not worried about defending that own title or for some reason can't come back and defend that title. You only want to have an interim title around for a very short shelf life. When they go away in, M- in MMA, when, they, when, an, when a UFC interim title goes away because he then fights the champion, they should be forgotten for a long time. I don't want to see another UFC bantam, excuse me, another interim UFC bantamweight champion for a very long time. What I don't want to see are these guys in regular rotation. I know, I know, Baral had to for a little while, but um, and then was eventually coronated as the final bantamweight champion. But you get what I'm saying. Um, they should be in really limited use. They should be used as a way to pull a champion, um, you know, back into competitive flow to the extent that they can. And they should really just be a stopgap. And when you and when they're removed, they should be removed for years at a time. Having to constantly bring it back would be very problematic. Having a guy defend it for a long period of time. Let me see how many times Jorge Arce defended it. This was a while ago, um, but. I mean, that dude defended that title a million times. It was crazy. All right, pulling up his record now. All right, I mean, look at this. So he beat the Colombian guy, Angel Antonio Priolo, for the interim WBC flyweight title, defended the interim one against Hussein Hussein, defended the interim against Adonis Rivas twice, uh, defended against... Uh, Rosendo Alvarez, and he, they call it being retained, um, but it was just the interim one. It's crazy. Defending it four times, that's really problematic. It's problematic about him sort of being stuck in a perennial number one contender position. It's problematic because they don't have a champion. The champion won't come and defend it. Um, and that situation that's sort of like much more you're going to find, if not exclusively in boxing over UFC, but I just mean um, they should be a quick stopgap measure. One, two, three fights at most. It should go away and stay gone for a long time. Is Jose Al- excuse me? If Jose Aldo loses via unanimous decision, do you think the UFC gives him an instant rematch for his long run as champion, or do they make the Chad Mendes Conor McGregor fight? I would lean towards the latter, but circumstances could always change that. First of all, was the decision bogus? Was it widely recognized as bogus? He's in Brazil, so it'd be hard for me to see exactly how it'd be bogus unless it's utter incompetence, but um, wouldn't be the first time. So that's the question number one. How did he lose via unanimous decision? Was it a really, really poor decision? Second, um, did he have moments, even if it was a unanimous decision, where something strange happened in the fight? A fence grab, um, a ref didn't see a tap, something like that. Then you could go back. But if he just gets throttled, if he just gets wrecked, um, I don't know that they necessarily give him one. Wouldn't rule it out. But as we've already seen, a couple things going on here. McGregor and 
McGregor and UFC set it up, you know, to have Mendez and McGregor go at each other just in case, you know, because if McGregor goes for a title shot, the story sells itself. Jose Otto, long-running champion, McGregor, this rising, surging contender, this phenomenon, this force of nature, this guy to deal with. That story, you don't need to do much promotion. But in the event that Chad Mendez wins, you already have that stuff that happened on BT Sport yesterday. You have this idea of these two squawking back and forth. UFC has, I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, all the things I think they do wrong, they just can't seem to do Conor McGregor wrong. And Conor McGregor makes it easy for him in some respects, I understand. But they put him out there and they do it. I mean, he is so expertly promoted, it's shocking how good they've done with him. So now you have, in case Mendez wins on Saturday and wins in a manner which you're talking about, clean, no bull S, this guy is the winning kind of performance, now you have something you can bank on with Conor McGregor. They can go either direction with this. They've really hedged their bets quite effectively. So um, I wouldn't rule out one given certain circumstances. Uh, or maybe there's some sort of fan push to get him a, 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 another fight, even if he loses in the way that Henan Burrell lost. But just recall that they did Henan Burrell, TJ Dillashaw too, or at least attempted to, before the whole incident happened, because there wasn't a whole lot else out there. Cries for Rafael Asuncao were just dead letter from the beginning. There, there was no real, you can't put that on pay-per-view, at least not as a headliner. And that's a co-main event at best from a, from a monetary standpoint. Um, and so they didn't really have a ton of great options. They didn't really know what was up with Cruz. He was going to fight Mizugaki, okay, but uh, how's he going to look? No one really knows. And now they got that fight set up, and that's fine. But with this one, with Aldo, if he loses in, let's say, a similar fashion, which I don't expect that he will, but if he does, they have options. They have a lot of options now. Chad Mendez versus Conor McGregor. Who doesn't want to see that fight? Let's be serious. That's the fight they want to see. Everybody wants to see that. And if not that one, certainly Conor McGregor versus Jose Aldo. Even if you think Conor McGregor, and I'm sympathetic to this argument, even if you think that, well, I don't know how he would do against Ricardo Lamas or Dennis Bermudez, given their wrestling prowess, I still think he should be forced to pass that test. I'm sympathetic to that argument. Maybe, maybe Conor McGregor steamrolls both of them. I don't know. Maybe he doesn't. But the, the argument that he hasn't faced that kind of guy is a fact. He hasn't. But if they just said, okay, well, forget all that argument. We're just going to make a championship fight, either with the new champion, Chad, Chad Mendez, or the old champion, Jose Aldo. Who doesn't want to see that? You'd say, okay, all right, well, that's not, the, I, that's not what I had initially wanted for Conor McGregor, but what are you going to do? You're going to boycott? No, you're going to watch. You're going to watch because that's an incredible fight. Uh, and, and you just want to see what happens with Conor McGregor, which is sort of the litmus test for all sorts of popularity measurement, isn't it? Anyway, so they have options at featherweight that they didn't have at bantamweight, and so that changes the equation. Uh, who do you have in the new UFC 180 main event? You know what's funny? I'm going to go with Verdum, but I'm nervous about that one. I think the takedown defense of Mark Hunt, no one seems to be talking about it, dramatically improved. He gets his hips back. He is heavy load. Um... You know, I don't think that a guy who's really adept at wrestling would be shut down forever. Fabrizio Verdum's not that great at wrestling. He doesn't have a tremendous double. He's going to do a lot of striking from the outside. He also, I think, has a better clinch than Mark Hunt. But Mark Hunt still has great hand speed for a big, fat guy. The way they, for the, we, 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 whatever we're going to call him, a big guy. Mark Hunt still has, obviously, we know his power is legendary. Tremendous chin, tremendous hand speed. Um, it's a close one. It's a close one. If it does get to the floor and 
Hunt has an issue with getting up, well, of course, Verdum's going to have his way. You know, you let a black belt world champion get on top of you in a in a dominant position, it's not going to go pretty well for you. But um, I'm not convinced that he can get the fight to the floor. I think he can fight in different ranges than Mark Hunt, and I think he he's, I think he's a little bit craftier than Mark Hunt. I think Mark Hunt, while Mark Hunt is like a heavyweight these days, kind of like follow me here. I'm not saying it's identical, but these days. Mark Hunt is a little bit like uh, a heavyweight Chuck Liddell, a bit of a sprawling brawler because his sprawl is massively improved. He can actually scramble, um, and he can obviously crack. He can crack a distance. I just think that Verdum can do. A, he can crack a distance too. Uh, wider array of attacks with his kicks um, on the floor, devastating, and then also could fight deep on the inside in the clinch. So. Um, I would favor Verdum, but I would say to you that that's an incredibly, incredibly close fight. Let me look up something here real quick, because uh, I know someone asked about it later, and I want to see. Yeah, boy. Mexico City is high in the air. Uh, all right, we'll get to that later. Uh, Chelson and Podcast. You guys talked about it a little bit on the MMA Beat, but what are your thoughts on Chael's podcast? Will you be listening to every episode from week to week? Probably not. There's a bunch of other podcasts that I listen to. I don't know what y'all listen to. I listen to um, ESPN FC, Grantland Football Podcast. Uh, I don't like his TV show that much, but I like the Dan Levitard radio show podcast. I try to catch co-main event when I can. Um, stuff like that. Most of my podcasts I listen to aren't MMA related, though. Uh, let's see. This one didn't get three wrecks, but it's worth talking about. If Phil Davis loses to Glover, he has lost his last two fights and before that won a controversial decision to Machida. Am I crazy in thinking that he is in danger of being released if he loses at 179? Yes, you are crazy. His style of fighting is not exactly exciting to watch. Well, no, but I, even if you acknowledge that the decision against Machida was sketchy, and I do, um, he didn't fight poorly in that fight. That was a close fight. And he did kind of manage rounds really well, getting those late takedowns, finding ways to stay on top and shut down Machida. I thought that that's one of the actually better performances of Phil Davis's career against elite opposition. I mean, he had nothing for Anthony Johnson. So I really kind of give him credit for how he fought against Machida. You can say the decision was bad, and I can go with you a little bit on that one. But, you know, in terms of what Phil Davis's skills are, I thought he did pretty well, all things considered, against Machida. Um, even if you think Machida won, it was close. It wasn't a blowout by any stretch of the imagination. And Machida's a very quality competitor who's fought a lot of good guys. So, so I don't think that that is necessarily any grounds for release. Losing to Anthony Johnson in the way he did, Anthony Johnson's been a beast since he came to the UFC. I don't think that, I mean, it hurt his stock as a contender, but not as somebody who you would necessarily place on this chopping block. Um, and if he lost to Glover, which I think he will, but if he loses to Glover, um, you know, we're talking about another guy who was undefeated for years, who fought John Jones the distance, who um, is an extraordinarily talented fighter. So, like, guys get released when they lose a lot, yes, and when they have boring styles, that expedites it too, but um, there has to be some kind of a tipping point, you know? Jake Shields was a little bit older um, and I think had a more up-and-down record in the UFC. He didn't beat some of the guys that Phil Davis has beat. And you're asking, you know, or you're saying his style is not exciting to watch, but he's still valuable. I think if Davis 
lost to somebody who was um, a little bit more on the top 10 bubble or was a surging contender, and therefore you could see them trading places a la Gastelum Ellenberger, that's when things really began to change. But losing to guys who were number one contenders or previous belt holders, or in this case, beating Machida, who was a previous belt holder, even if uh, not necessarily aesthetically pleasing, the, this is not necessarily the, the ingredients of release. I suppose it can be in a new era, but Davis would be, um, you know, I think would steamroll guys in Bellator, would be a great addition for them. I don't know that they would necessarily want to get rid of him, especially when he can be valuable against testing up-and-coming light heavyweight competition in the top 10. Davis is still trying to hold on to the idea of being top five or at least be, being able to beat consistently guys in that top five. And if he can't do it against Glover Teixeira, he's got some issues and some questions to answer. But I don't think that necessarily equates to being on the chopping block for his job. That You have to have something missing there for the most part. Again, if you're boring, quote-unquote, quote-unquote boring, that can expedite things. But even then, he hasn't reached this tipping point where you're like, well, where does he go from here? He still has a serviceable place in the rankings um, that make him valuable. He's also getting better at doing media, which might save him a little bit. Recall Jake Shields was sort of like always bad at doing media. Uh, let's see here. Someone wants to know how the sausage is made. Uh, who decides what to write at MMA Fighting? You guys have a boss that tells you what to watch for and cover? Yes. Or everyone for themselves? A little bit of that. Does anyone check around the office to make sure somebody else isn't already writing a piece that they'd like to write? All of that. All of that's true. Someone says, this is a good question. Um, should we assume that this is the norm in terms of chronic injuries and that the sport's greatest performers will be cons consistently inconsistent when it comes to showing up and actually performing? What measures need to be enacted to reduce the impact of this epidemic? Higher pay? What is it? Fact is, it's killing my interest in the sport, and I suspect I'm not the only one. You are certainly not. I keep hearing this over and over again. And the UFC is probably painfully aware of that, as is Bellator too. Because as the UFC goes, so goes Bellator. And Cage Warriors and everybody else. Um, I, I was thinking about this today. I don't know how you guys feel about it out there. I, here's the scary part that we just sort of all need to accept. We don't really know. No one really knows. Why is this happening? Why is Cain Velasquez only able to fight six times in four years? Why is Anthony Pettis unable to defend his title in 2014? Why is Chris Weidman chronically injured? Why? Why is that taking place in a sport where people like Ronda Rousey are able to perform basically on a pretty consistent schedule? Why is that happening in a sport where guys like Nick and Nate Diaz can't stay out of jail, at least in the case of Nick Diaz with his DUIs, and yet never gets injured before a fight? Never. The Diaz brothers have never pulled out of an injury before a fight. How is that happening? It cannot simply be coincidence. It cannot be chalked up to the idea that, well, it just happened that way. That's just the way the cookie crumbles. I do not believe that. Cain Velasquez has his own body type, but it's very different than Anthony Pettis's. And Anthony Pettis's is different than Nick and Nate Diaz. But I, do, I cannot accept the idea that it's just some sort of way that the sport works. 
But I'm scared to say that none of us really have any idea. There's no real good theory about why this happens. There's a couple of what, what intuitively seem to be good ideas. Oh, well, this person has an interesting theory. We don't know. And when I say we don't know, no one has ever measured this. No one seems to have a grasp about what we even need to measure. What are we even measuring when we say this is the cause of why some guys get injured more than others? On the one hand, I have to think that Cain Velasquez, the way he fights is the way he trains. And the way he trains must be insane. And when you train this sort of insane, hyper output of offense and, and scrambling and wrestling and phase changing of the game, that has to just wreak havoc on your joints because he's had these knee injuries now. He's also had multiple shoulder injuries. And as a man who's had shoulder injuries, I had, I had a labrum surgery on this one. I can tell you it is devastating to come back from. It's very, very hard. Now, Cain Velasquez is a world-class athlete. You know, okay, it's a different thing, but you get the idea. These are not insignificant. The, 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 listen, your knee only bends. Look, your knee bends just this way, up and down. That's why a knee bar hurts because it makes it go like that, okay? A shoulder does everything. I can raise it to the side. I can go laterally. I can go up with it. I can come down with it. I can go forward. I can do circles with it. It's a super mobile joint. He's damaging that multiple times. Labrum, and I think um, he tore his rot uh, rotator cuff as well. I strained a rotator cuff on this one doing the military press back in my Marine Corps days. Um, and he's, he's injuring that. And now he's got knee injuries. And look, God knows what else he's got, you know. And I think he had the knee injuries before the first Dos Santos fight, too. Now, to what extent this is similar or not, I don't know. So my, that's one of my hunches about Cain Velasquez. But why Anthony Pettis? I don't know. Why Chris Weidman? I don't know. Chris, what you could say, well, Chris, you know, some of these guys that train at the super camp and they're fighting for their lives every time they get out there on the mat. Okay, that's fine. That's not what Chris Weidman's doing. Chris Weidman one time told me he was so happy he trained at a place like Longo and Sarah where they brought in some good guys to help him, but he was generally king of the mountain. It had a much more of a boxing-type camp. It had much more of a boxing-type camp. Um, again, they brought in guys like Stephen Thompson and some other ones out there. John Vellante is a good partner of his. He's a big guy. He can wreak havoc even... You know, not intentionally, but he, or even intentionally. You get the idea. Big guys can do big damage. but So so that's not necessarily the case. Uh, Pettis trains with Duke Rufus, who um, doesn't have this issue with other guys necessarily. It's not like, it's not like Rufus sport guys are always pulling out of injury. Ben Askren seems to make it from beginning to end. No problem. Eric Koch for the most part. Um, lots of guys. So... Although, you know, Cook has injuries as well, but not in this sort of, like, devastatingly chronic way. Um, it's a problem, and no one really seems to know. All I know is there must be some kind of set of best practices we're not being able to have access to. I j it just cannot – I mean, I am willing to believe that some guys have better body construction than others, that their joints are just more – they're, they're just sturdier than other people. It's just like some people have higher IQs and better muscle density and can run faster and have faster twitch fiber muscles and all these sort of different things. I'm willing to believe that extends to the, sort of the architectural integrity of their body. I'm also willing to believe, though, that, that in, a, in a sport like MMA where you have to train the way you do at the professional highest level, even that has to get tested time to time. Even that has to get tested. How do they not – how do the Diaz brothers never have injuries that prevent them from competing? It's crazy. It's crazy. So here's the scary part. We don't really know. We don't really know. Dean Lister once told me, if you really want to ban, you know, if you want to cut down on injuries, ban takedowns in training. More people get injured from takedowns, both executing and getting taken down than anything else. Look at John Jones. Exact perfect case. 
didn't fight Daniel Cormier for that reason. But how do you train properly if you have no takedowns? I, I don't know what the answer is. I really, really don't know. I, I, and, and no one else seems to either. We have a bunch of competing theories, many of which seem intuitively correct. The scary part about it is we have a major, serious problem. The ninth pay-per-view headlining event just this year that's been scrapped due to injury, and nobody knows why it's happening. If that doesn't send shivers down your spine, I don't know what will. As a fan, both are great scenarios. What would you enjoy more as a fan? GSP fights Anderson in Vegas. GSP fights Rory for the belt in Canada, the latter. Sell me on this fight. Does Chad Mendez have any chance against Aldo? On rewatching the first fight, he looked way smaller and nothing he did was effectual. I don't see any way he could have changed that much to make this competitive. I'm leading heavily towards not buying. Change my mind. Well, whether you want to buy is up to you. Right? Again, if you love Jose Aldo and you love Chad Mendez, get out there and support him. Show, vote with your dollars. If you don't, don't. It's up to you. I'm not going to tell you to buy or don't buy. Um, only you can decide that. In terms of the fight, I don't know what to tell you. I'm sort of with you. I, I'm actually working on a Jose Aldo, Jose Aldo article for Friday. Um, I'm trying to write more opinion pieces because I've gotten out of it and my writing is, I can barely recognize it anymore. Neither here nor there. I really wonder, people keep saying a lot of things about why Jose Aldo is sort of fighting the way he's fighting, which is to say dominant, highly technical, but there's sort of this sense of the thrill you used to get from watching Aldo, I think is, I can safely say, somewhat dissipated. Not among everybody, but among some people, me being one of them. Um, that's not to say I don't think he deserves to be ranked pound for pound. That's not to say I don't think he's one of the best fighters on the planet. That's not to say he doesn't deserve all the accolades that are heaped on him. I'm simply saying from a consumerist perspective, I don't necessarily get the same thrill I got when he was competing in WEC. And there's a couple of reasons for that. I think, first and foremost, he's fighting better guys. And maybe I'm overstating the case here, but I really wonder about that WEC cage. Part of the reason Jose Aldo has had a lot of success defensively, and a lot of his game is very defensive. We often think of Aldo in these really offensive terms. My God, look at the hand speed, look at the leg kicks, what he did to Uriah Faber. And then even more recently, you know, knocking down. Go back and watch the Edgar fight. I rewatched it yesterday. The amount of times he just cracks Frankie Edgar with these thudding leg kicks, takes him off of his feet a couple of times. Um, we, we associate him with all, you know, these offensive dynamism. And I think that's fair. But it's really also fair to say Jose Aldo uses the octagon space really well. He's circling out. He's creating space when guys tried to blitz him. He's moving out of the way and, and, and not, not just like slipping punches. I mean moving out of the way when guys try to corner him or attack him. He doesn't spend a whole lot of time against the fence, and when he does, he stops the takedown and creates separation right away, part of his skill set. But I just mean that Octagon really gives his defense space to breathe. And even if you go back to watch the Mike Brown fight, I would say Jose Aldo was a little more flat-footed in that fight than he's been in more recent fights. Jose Aldo's a little bit more on his heels these days, or I shouldn't say heels, on the balls of his feet a little more these days. He's kind of moving a little bit more. His style hasn't changed much. It's gotten a little bit better in terms of its technical proficiency. But I really think that Octagon has opened him up the doors for his defense to stay out of things. And what happens when a guy charges him and Jose Aldo moves out? And we're talking like 10, 20 feet. Like he circles out, man. He gets out of the way. What happens? 
Everyone's forced to reset. Everyone is forced to slowly inch their way forward. Someone tries to take center of the cage. You can't blitz him. He circles out and then run across and blitz again. He's too far away. So it has, his fights are full of these reset moments where, where guys are trying to inch, 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 inch. And then he is, because he has the, the, the explosive speed and the reflexive decision-making skills, he's able to attack usually first and then get out of the way. Attack and then get out of the way. Um, I don't see how Chad Mendes can reasonably fix that problem. To me, you need somebody who can match his speed or his understanding of space. I'd still favor Aldo to beat McGregor, but I do wonder about that, about, about McGregor's ability to control for space, negative space. Um, until, you, until you settle that issue, I don't, I don't know what Mendez is going to do differently. He's going to have a lack of reach. He's not going to be as quick. The takedown defense of Jose Aldo is impeccable. By the way, his clinch takedowns are pretty damn good. Um, but he's just so able to put the fight on his terms by his ability to use backwards and sideways, I should say backwards and lateral spacing defensively. He's always forcing guys to reset in a position standing that he benefits from. Uh, and, and I think the WEC cage kind of limited that a little bit, where he was sort of forced to engage a little bit more, forced to defend a little bit more, and then launch offense off of defense, rather than these sort of neutral positions that he seems to dominate. About Kung Lee. Luke, this whole thing seems kind of shady, still. Like you said, it does not prove that Kung did not use HGH, but after this whole process, his reputation as a clean fighter and a, quote, pure martial artist is definitely ruined. That's his words, not mine. Doesn't this provide more questions than answers? Rescinding the punishment at this juncture seems a little too premature. Also, after the creation of such a precedent that allows a fighter to appeal the positive drug test, wouldn't it create more complications to other positive drug tests, especially in overseas events, without a regulatory body overseeing the whole thing? Um... I don't think that anything that they did is necessarily, and I sound like people on Twitter, what, you're surprised by this? But uh, it isn't necessarily all that surprising. On the one hand, they just sort of have to accept that because of the way in which they botched it the first time, by going to this lab in the way they did, and collecting the sample in which the way they did, and not having a B sample in the way that they don't, they have basically, basically just uh, uh, rendered themselves unable to have the kind of test that would definitively, Jesus, who is hitting me up? What the hell? All right, I'll check it out later. Here's the point. What he was, here's the one thing I can, I can tell you definitively. He underscored a faulty process. The process by which he was evaluated, where they took the sample after the fact and they went to the, the, this faulty laboratory in the way they did and the, the whole collection process. What he basically showed was that this cannot be the standard by which I am measured nor future athletes are measured. Right? That's, that's the whole question here. In the end, will we know definitively whether he did or didn't do anything? There's no way to know. It's impossible to know. The B sample's been destroyed, and who knows how the collection process could have tainted it. That's not the issue. The issue is 
they, that the, 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 the methodology they use, the, the system in place, just wasn't adequate for his needs or any other athlete. Again, you have to protect the right of clean athletes. And, um, and you have to assume that all, all athletes are clean until after the fact. Um, and so they all have certain rights up front. And those weren't protected here. And so because they weren't protected, um, he has a right to underscore that. What happens in the end? Your call, your guess is as good as mine. We don't really know. But it, people are like, well, it doesn't prove he doesn't use, didn't use HGH. Maybe it's true he didn't. But that's not what Kung Lee's argument's about. Kung Lee's argument's about is the positive test you can't rely on because of all these other reasons. And that's the only narrow argument that he's making. That's the only one that, it sounds like a narrow argument. It is a narrow argument with wide implications. I think that's the issue here. So, um, why would they not go through with it? I think his argument's pretty ironclad. That's the first part. The second part is, um, I wrote an article about it. The American Arbitration Association was set to handle this issue. And so, there was a discovery process there. What, what would they have found out in that discovery process? Um, either on Kung Lee's side or on UFC side. I don't know the answer to that, but clearly they felt like going that far and maybe losing to the, one of their own fighters in arbitration wouldn't have been a great look for them or, or whatever the case may be. But I think they decided that arbitration was probably a gratuitous and un unnecessary process at this point. Kung Lee's case about how the process was handled for his HGH test was pretty ironclad. There's not a lot of debate around that. Given what we know about proper standards of the chain of custody and collection and testing and how far away it was from that and that the American Arbitration Association was going to select people that had a background in anti-doping efforts and, and testing, international testing, you know, Kung Lee's going to be able to say this was the standard, this was the process that was handed to me in this particular case. Look at the distance between them. You know, who knows what other issues may have come about as a result, but rescinding it prior to arbitration, um, you know, it's not the best look necessarily because remember they went from nine months to 12 months and now they're going to zero months and he's sort of back. It, it doesn't help the UFC look good, but this whole process, the UFC sort of, I think what it underscores is they're still trying to figure it out internationally. They don't have a lot of good answers internationally for this kind of, for this kind of issue. And so this is helping them. Uh, this has been informative in many ways going forward. So we'll see what happens. But I mean, just forget all the other stuff. What is Kung Lee arguing? He may say in the media, I'm totally innocent. And maybe he is. We don't, we don't know. But that's my point. We don't know. What we do know for sure is that the process by which they used to evaluate his guilt or innocence was so flawed, we have to throw the whole thing out. That's what we know. All right. Luke, a technique question. The heel hook. From a technique standpoint, why is there a heel hook such a dangerous move? Is it due to the various damage that it can cause to the fighter's leg if used? Is this the main reason why it's illegal in gi BJJ competitions? What is the heel hook's origin? Was it ever used in judo or Japanese jiu-jitsu practices? With my limited understanding, it seems perfectly legal in most grappling principles like catch and sambo. This move seems relatively simple to apply, and I'm not sure why more MMA fighters outside of Pajara seem comfortable in using this dangerous move. As for its origin, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I'm inclined to think that Japanese jiu-jitsu, which is different than Brazilian jiu-jitsu, um, there's a good book. I've mentioned it on this chat a number of times. It's called Falling Hard. Falling Hard um, talks about the origin of Japanese jiu-jitsu and how well, these basically these, these roving clans, these 
I won't call them armed militias, but these roving clans um, in, uh, in Japan, uh, they did a lot of things, one of which was they had their own curriculum for what jiu-jitsu was. And these curriculums often didn't meet what the other club had, but there were some similarities. And Jigaro Kano, what he came up with was sort of taking out all the stuff that was maybe weaponized or that had these really bad effects if used um, and simplified it out and then made judo off of that, then made one curriculum about what judo was. That being said, perhaps the heel hook has an origin prior to that. I don't know. I don't know what the origin of the heel hook is. What I can tell you is um, part of the reason why it is so dangerous in gi competitions is because it's hard to get out of them. If, if, if I have a 50-50 leg lock on you with a gi on, um, even no gi, it can be hard to remove, but it's possible there are ways to maneuver. With the pant leg, I can cross my legs and then I can just grab a pant full of legs. I can't go inside your pants, but at a minimum, I can take your pants and roll my knuckles into it and then clamp my elbow to my ribs and you can't go anywhere. And so it really creates almost no ability to defend in certain circumstances. I think that's one reason why, because some jujitsu tournaments will allow the heel hook only in no-gi contexts. You can do other ankle locks, a straight ankle lock. You can do, um, you can do a toe hold. There's some other options available to you, but the toe hold and the ankle lock, um, they're a little bit lower percentage. The ankle lock is really mostly, a, not entirely, but mostly a pain submission. Doesn't have the same kind of effect. So, um, so yeah. So that's sort of why I don't think they allow it in gi competitions. As for someone, I think in the comments wrote this. Why are leg locks from dominant positions virtually unheard of? There was a buddy of mine who went to Henzo's recently, and he this, this he said this guy would keep letting him get mount on him, and then. It was this big strong dude, and then he said the big strong dude would like buck him and then get a heel hook from there, which is kind of interesting. Um, someone in the bottom here says, "Who? Okay, he, he, another reader says I have trained BJJ for nearly six years, and I'm a purple belt under Jacare Alliance, not MMA. And the only time I've been taught on how to do a heel hook was way back in the day at the Hildoli Nogi classes in the middle of nowhere, Tennessee." The proper defense to get out of leg locks are often covered, but rarely do they instruct leg locks because it's pro not because it's primarily a training issue. Not many guys who train BJJ, sub grappling, or catch wrestling end up fighting, let alone compete in a tournament. So when are guys going to use them in training? What happens when you apply a proper leg lock? Parts of your leg, ankle, knee move in ways that is never supposed to move. So what? Torn ligaments, severe damage. No more training BJJ equals no more money in the instructor's pocket. That's one attitude. Uh, some in schools are a little bit more proactive in how they make leg lock training incremental so that by the time you guys reach purple brown black level it's you understand how you can get away with it how you can't how you can defend how you can apply under what circumstances and to who and to not to um, they make it they they diffuse it in such a way by making it more common but to answer your question the leg lock the heel hook is, is super deadly because it can damage both the ankle and the knee so you have a twisting motion two ways the ankle is going one way the knees being held in position in another um, even if you don't injure the ankle, you might injure the knee or both or one or the other. That's the first problem. The other problem is because the ankle is a malleable joint, like a wrist, for example, you can get into trouble real quickly. So, like, for example, some darse chokes, again, some guys might apply a darse choke and you feel it right away. It's like, oh, damn, I'm, he got me or she got me or whatever. But sometimes they lock it up and they have to adjust it and they have to roll through with it. Guillotine chokes, you see it all the time in MMA. It may not necessarily be an automatic thing. With a heel hook, if it's on right, you know, you, 
you can be doing damage or on the precipice of damage before they feel anything. Like once they feel it, it's because it's been torn. Not always, not all the time. Some guys have a really, that's the point I'm talking about, training for that sensitivity. So that you know once it reaches this point, that's the point of no return. If they get, you know, any moment past that, you're in trouble. That, that, that's sort of what it's all about. It's just, it's really effective, it's dangerous, um, and should only be handled by advanced students uh, in training. But I think learning about leg locks generally is an important part of, of sub-grappling. Let's see. Any thoughts on the upcoming Fox Catcher movie based on the life of wrestling great Mark Schultz? Do you think the movie is an accurate portrayal of the tragedy that occurred with the wrestling icon? Well, without having seen it, I couldn't possibly tell you. That said, um, all indications are that it's incredible and looks great. So we'll see. True or false? I believe that UFC 179 will do under 200,000 pay-per-view buys. False. Probably false. I believe there's a 50% chance I won't be covering MMA in five years. Uh, that's probably false. I can't believe the heavyweight division is as thin as it is with fighters like Mark Hunt and Arlovsky making their way back into the title picture. Yeah, I think it was uh, PDL MMA was tweeting yesterday that Mark Hunt defending the UFC heavyweight title against Andre Arlovsky in 2015 is an actual possibility. I asked Santa for a new Retina iMac for Christmas. No. I don't need anything anymore, man. Fighters from Thailand. Luke, why do you think there are so few MMA fighters, at least at a high level, from Thailand? With Muay Thai being such a big part of Thai culture, you would have thought that more people would make the transition to MMA. Is this purely a cultural thing and that they are proud of the sport and don't want to practice other forms, or is it because large promotions such as UFC haven't made the push? If you haven't seen Duke Rufus on the Joe Rogan experience, you need to. As he sort of explained it, Muay Thai it has nothing in Thailand. Not I wouldn't say nothing. Very little to do with the martial arts. It's horse racing. It's horse racing is what that is. You can take kids who are desperately poor, whose families otherwise would not make a ton of money. You take them out of their homes at age six or seven. You give them 300-plus fights until their early 20s. And if the best ones get to Roger Domner or Lumpini Stadium, and they can win a fair amount of money and glory and national celebrity, then they're done. You know, that's how that works. Um, we're talking about a place in Thailand that, you know, listen, there's money everywhere in the world, but typically speaking, people are dirt poor. They don't have a deep culture of wrestling. There's no jiu-jitsu there. You have teams like Phuket Top Team and whatever else the case, but Tiger Muay Thai, that are bringing westernized standards of mixed martial arts best practices over to Thailand. But they're not really able to train a ton of native ties, as I understand it. They're training other people in Thailand strictly to absorb the ties, what they can give them for Muay Thai, not so they can give necessarily back, because I don't know that a lot of people can necessarily afford it. And if you're a Lumpinia at Roger Domino Stadium, why would you then want to go into MMA when you can go do something else after the fact? Because um, you have to learn a whole new skill set. There's other kickboxing you could be doing. Glory, in fact, is signing some of these guys. Um, to me, it isn't at all an ish, uh, uh, a mystery about why they're not. From a, from a purchasing power of the middle class, or which not even the middle class, of the, of, the, of the dominant economic class there, they don't have it. There's no real practice of wrestling there. Um, there's no real best resources to use, and uh, with some exception, obviously. 
and those camps are set up for other people to go there and then take the skills that the ties have not to get and give back because there's no one asking for it at least not very much any word on alistair overeem at aka just a joke but would be pretty funny if alistair overeem were to be behind this one too uh okay uh, all right, this one's from my email. In light of the Velasquez injury, I was hoping that you'd weigh in on the specific problem of avoiding the knee injuries that are blighting the sport and demonstrably restricting the growth. Is it time for the UFC to take a much more hands-on approach, for instance, by calling for a constitutional convention of the major gyms to try and establish best practice? Training methodologies for this sport are clearly in their infancy, but we can discern that knee problems are a major issue. Wrestling seems to be, be a big part of it, but so too are transitions from striking to grappling. Is there anything methodologically that can be done? I think that getting, excuse me, I think that canceled big fights are damaging the sport as much as the excessive number of events. I don't disagree. When there's this many injuries, it's a big problem. What you're basically asking for is for the UFC to take the lead on this issue. Um, if they're not going to do it, who is? Who, who is affected more by this? You know, who gets hurt worse than the UFC? Beltor has injuries too, you know, but when you swap out whoever Emmanuel Newton was going to fight for the light heavyweight title, at least on the current schedule, it doesn't mean a whole lot. I'm sure it will when they go to their new schedule in 2015, one, um, one event a month on Fridays and then four or, or, or calendar year on Saturdays. You know, those tentpole events, as they call them, they're going to want to, they're going to want to have, make sure that the roster comes to the, you know, whatever they put on the fight card, they're going to want that by the time the fans show up to, to, to see the event. But really, no one is hurt worse than, than UFC by this because they have such a unique offering. Pay us money directly for this card. That's what pay-per-view is. You don't have to watch anything on Fox for free, even though it's free. There's opportunity cost that's involved there, you know, with what you could be doing with your time. But that pay-per-view offering, this one night, this one card, pay us this amount of money. There's a, there's a one-to-one offering there. And when that is affected, not just once but continuously, um, it has a dramatic effect on the ability of the UFC to, to do the business they normally would like to do. As for a response, again, I, I hearken back to what I said previously. No one really knows the answer. So I, I, I think... We have to start somewhere, though, right? Maybe what you're calling for, a quote-unquote constitutional convention of the major gyms to establish best practices is a good way to handle it. Maybe somehow there's a commission role to play here. I don't really know what the answer is. Maybe it is more money. Maybe it's less money. I don't, maybe it's fewer fights. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. We have to start somewhere. We have to start pinpointing what the issue could be. The fragility of some people's body versus the sturdiness of others. Is that the sole answer? Are we, just, are we just destined to be unlucky or lucky in that way? I don't know. But I, I, can't, I can't imagine that UFC is just going to stand around and wait for this to get worse or get better. I, I, you would have to think they want to get involved in some capacity. How you do that, I don't know. Someone says, if everyone does the same thing training-wise... I would assume some fighters are going to look for an advantage by tweaking them or thinking they know better. That'll spiral into, at or worse, what we have now. It is hurting the sport and has me not buying a ticket when they went on sale where I live. Um, 
That's one way to look at it. I think that's a point. I don't think everyone's saying you have to train striking this way, you have to train boxing this way, you have to train wrestling this way. But they may say that there are certain amounts that you should never go beyond. Um, if guys have certain, I don't know, I don't know. If guys have certain styles or certain ways to cater to it, if there are certain guys in camps, this is how you should taper it off after several weeks out. Injuries won't go away. You're right, guys will tweak the system. But if they can get on, if guys can be told, I mean, this is how they make their money. They make their money by crossing that finish line. Remember the, the Ryan Ford video? That's how they make their money. If you can somehow convince them this is in your best interest to collect the kind of money you want to collect to stay at least moderately within these boundaries, um, perhaps that might have an effect. But I don't know. Uh, let's see. Did the UFC press release on Kung Lee? I feel like they presented the, all the facts but glossed over that they had really screwed up. What do you expect them to say? Guys, we really got this wrong. So they're not going to say that. They're going to admit that um, they want to make changes with Kung Lee and they're going to move on to the next one. The question is, you know, is what went wrong with the Kung Lee situation going to reveal itself in future situations? If so, we have a problem. If not, then... Um, you know, Kung Lee certainly hasn't got out of this unscathed, but could have been significantly worse. Uh, where is Dana White these days? Is it just me, or does Dana White seem to be really quiet? I thought he was in a bit of a funk after Silva and GSP retired, but he still seems not as happy as ever. S uh, or something. Um, well, there hasn't been UFC in almost three weeks. Um, and, you know, with the, some of the injuries and some of the issues he's dealing with, I doubt he would want to get out in front of the media. That much, would you? I don't know, but I, uh, I haven't spoken to him. UFC versus Bellator. Luke, do you have any idea why we haven't seen a single fighter try and get a better contract from Bellator like what Gil Melendez did? Uh, yeah, I think the free agent market isn't very interesting right now. I think a lot of guys are tied up. There's not a lot of guys near the end of their contract who could be an interesting purchase for potential sign-up for Bellator. But give it time. Because eventually that's going to happen. And when it does, we'll see what happens after that fact. Weight cutting, fighter safety. I just read an article on the site saying how Hunt is over 300 pounds when he was offered his fight on three weeks' notice. Should the UFC have a backup plan? Probably, but I think, I, I think he'll be able to make it. Um, explain the responsibility fighters have to manage their own weight. Well, I mean, he does, but he wasn't sure he was going to get an interim title shot. So I don't know, so that's... I'm not sure how that question is relevant. What responsibility does a promoter have in offering a fight on late notice to a fighter they know is going to have to cut a tremendous amount of weight? Well, hopefully the off, the, when, when they offered that to Hunt, they made it clear what the timeline was and what he'd have to do um, and whether or not he could do it and whether or not even if he could do it, it was ethical for him to do it. Um, but that's where a commission would come into play. So in this particular case, the one that's being used in Mexico – Probably not that robust. How do you feel about taking measures like college wrestling to ensure the sport stops drastic weight cuts? We've covered this in a previous edition of this chat. The comprehensive effort that the NCAA took to oversee how wrestlers cut weight throughout the course of a season is not available at this stage to either commissions or the UFC, where you have constant measuring of hydration. You have... Um, I've been over this. A thousand steps that they took after those deaths 
the three deaths in the single year of the wrestling season. There's all these steps that they take to ensure that hydration is a part of a college wrestler's experience and eating properly and uh, the more weight classes and, and how they do weigh-ins and all, ki- all kinds of stuff, all kinds of stuff. Um, there still are some pretty drastic cuts. I thought Derek St. John of Iowa had a vicious cut all last season, but or all, all last year, I should say. But, um, but those hands-on methods, they can be handed down as like, you know, dictums or ultimatums from the NCAA down to, say, Cornell University, and then Cornell would help from oversight of the NCAA could help monitor these things. Again, some schools are always going to cheat, and wrestlers are going to cheat the system, but the system much more tightly rep, you know, is regulated. There's thing, there's, you can monitor a student athlete in a way that you can't really monitor a fighter. There's no overarching architecture that can do that. And so what NCAA did was very effective, but I don't see how it's replicable for what UFC and MMA needs. Which fight will fewer Fs be given? Joe Lazon versus Diego Sanchez or Nick Diaz versus Anderson Silva? Um, Got to be Joe Lazon versus Nick Diaz. Got to be. Lord have mercy. All right. Yet another tough season where the coaches won't fight. Uh, I hadn't thought about it previously, but it's really true. Is it a curse? I don't think so. Rashad Evans versus Alexander Gustafson. I would prefer Gustafson wins this fight, but I actually think Rashad gets it done. Evans has great MMA wrestling and can actually be a threat on the feet. I think relentless takedowns and great top control win this fight for him. I know Alexander has great takedown defense, but Rashad being shorter may give him better opportunities to get his hips easier. Um, I don't think so. I don't think that Rashad has quite the explosive ability that he had previously. I think he's still very good, but Gustafson's probably a tick above. I think Gustafson's takedown defense has dramatically improved since the Phil Davis fight. Um, And I also think over the course of five rounds, the ability for Gustafson to manage the jab uh, and pump it right in front of Evans' face would make getting in on him very difficult. With someone like Rampage, you can get him to swing wild big hooks. You can, you can get really close to him so that when you level change, you're right on his hips. I don't think that's really possible necessarily with, with Gustafson. At least not consistently. Fighter pay. Like here, always comes up, man. Every chat. But this one's a little bit different. What do you think about Aldo's comments about a fighter's lack of fair compensation? Should more fighters, excuse me, should more top fighters follow his lead? In the past, Dana has been critical of any fighter that has complained about pay, mainly because they do it after being cut from the UFC or when they are in decline. Um, This was a really interesting one that that I saw because I saw a couple of responses to it. And the responses that I saw were basically like, oh, here's Aldo again. First of all, the one argument that everyone makes that is just the worst argument in the world. He makes, let's say, 120k to show, 120k to win. That seems like a lot of money to me. Well, that it seems like a lot of money to you is irrelevant. 
Okay, because we've been on this before. If you're saying something like that, you don't understand the economics of it, which is that the fighters are probably entitled to a certain percentage of the general gross revenue that is brought in by the exercise of fighters competing under the UFC banner, or that they have a specialized skill talent that could be monetized in a particularly high-level way. You don't have any of those skills. But we've been over that. But what do they always respond with besides that one? They always respond with, Aldo, if you want to make more money, <laughs> learn the king's English and get out there and promote. Get out there and promote, boy. You better tell Conor McGregor you want to rest your balls on his forehead. Better get out there and promote, son. Um, which is hilarious to me because what out aside from just, you know, a lot of things. The problem with that argument is that what Aldo is underscoring is not merely that he feels he doesn't have enough money or, or the right amount of money. What he's decrying is the method by which you're asking him to participate in. You're saying to Aldo, Aldo, you want more money? Continue to operate in the very system you're decrying. That's what you're telling him. He doesn't want to do those other things. I mean, he does media like anybody else does. He does media like anybody else does, but you're asking him to participate in a system. If he goes out there and does those things, hey, Conor McGregor, I'm going to rest my balls on your forehead. What do you think about that now? And does it in his own Portuguese. Or maybe he learns the King's English. I don't know. Either way, though, he's not challenging the system by which he thinks is the very problem. He'd be manipulating the system, and maybe personally he might be able to take more advantage of it, but that's still a system in place that, whether you agree with him or not, he thinks is fundamentally flawed. So the argument is not about whether Aldo should do more interviews or learn English or start feuds with Conor McGregor or whoever, whatever else you think. What Aldo is underscoring is that the system, as he sees it, is fundamentally flawed. The method by which fighters are paid and is the one that he has a problem with. What you're telling him is, oh, ignore that, just take advantage of the system. Well, why would you take advantage of a system that you think is fundamentally broken? I'm not saying you have to agree that it's fundamentally broken, but that's how he sees it. So if you want to argue with him, what you have to argue with him is, is whether or not the system is fundamentally broken. Because he's not arguing that if he did those things, he could make more money. What he's arguing is he shouldn't have to because that system is flawed. That's the argument you should be having with him. As for me, I don't know which way I go on it. On the one hand, I certainly think that fighters, again, my maximum on this is until they act collectively to uh, change their bargaining power, they won't receive the maximum amount that they could. And so, by definition, all fighters are kind of underpaid in some capacity. That's one issue. Um, but, you know, until they do that, I can't fix that for them. Uh, but the other issue here, sort of besides that, um, is, I don't know, I lost my train of thought. So there you go. Let's see. Oops. Uh, let's go to Twitter for a little bit, if we can. I want to make sure I get in on all these. Do you think that fighters pretend to be injured so they can make more money in publicity while they aren't relevant? No, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, what do you think of Joe Schilling and Bellator MMA? Given the right kind of matchup, in this particular case, Melvin Manhoof, should be a lot of fun. 
How long can I until I can start taking phone calls? I don't know because that's not on the agenda, but I wouldn't rule that out. If you guys have been watching this for the longest time, I used to allow people to get in on the Google chat with me, but none of y'all ever wanted to do that. Now everyone wants to call in. See how it works? Uh, let's see. Was a JDS versus Verdum a more deserving fight for the interim heavyweight title than Hunt versus Verdum? Uh, yes, maybe. You can make that case, but... He's already booked up against Stipe Miocic. They can't keep robbing Peter to pay Paul. They can at least keep that Miocic JDS Fox card in place and then pull Hunt, who's inactive, into this role. One year injury equals taking a title away. Six month injury equals interim title. What do you think? Not a bad idea. Again, I think if you miss two I think if you miss two fights, they should put an interim title in there. Let's see. What are you saying? Uh, okay. Y'all are making these hard to ask questions and it's slowing things now. So I'm going to go back to MMA fighting. All right. So again, same question. When should a champion be stripped of his belt? Stripped is like, I don't know, a year and a half of inactivity, something like that. Two years inactivity. Here we go. Hunt on three weeks' notice. We all love Mark Hunt, but obviously the weight is a major issue. Even if the weight is made, Verdum's been in Mexico two months training already. Will this diminish the worth of the interim title, Hunt not being properly prepared for this fight? If Verdum wins. It seems logical for Verdum to take it to the later rounds and then sub, uh, submit an exhausted hunt where he can catch him e easily. This seems like a one-sided victory. Thoughts? Well, I would never say it's one-sided. I think that um, Mark Hunt is a much more capable heavyweight fighter than he used to be. But to your point, to your point, uh, Mexico City's elevation is 7,382 feet in the air, 2,250 meters. That is a very, very high level of elevation. Okay, so uh, that's higher than Denver. I think Denver's like 55. Let me see Denver. Denver is, yeah, 5,100 to 5,600, depending on the place where you go. So it's 2,000 more feet in the air than Denver. I was at the Denver fight. I think it was UFC 135. I can't remember now. It was whatever Jones' rampage was where Hunt fought Rothwell, and you saw how exhausted Hunt was. Now, I think he's a better fighter than the one he fought with that night, but it took a pretty dramatic toll on him. To your point, Verdum's already been in Mexico for two months. He's going to be acclimatized in a way that Hunt won't be. Plus, we have Hunt trying to get down. Yeah, listen, Hunt is, he's got an uphill battle. But you're asking what? Like, what is the alternative here? Well, you could bring in JDS. Okay, well, then you ruin that main event on Fox. Now, what are you going to do? Now what's your choice? You've already had one card ruined. Why would you ruin another one? So to your point, doesn't he have to lose 40 pounds? Yes, he does. And doesn't he have this acclimatization issue, this elevation issue? Yes, he does. What is the alternative? <laughs> what, 
what is the alternative? Would you rather have a depleted hunt than no hunt at all and something else that's even worse than this? I certainly wouldn't. Given the momentum that Hunt has behind his career and given the opportunity and the kind of fight he can make it, it's at least interesting for two rounds, maybe three. I agree. By the fourth and fifth round, there's no doubt in my mind that um, given all the current conditions, Verdum's going to have an advantage if it goes that far one way or the other. But I would be, it would be foolish of you to think that Hunt is somehow so massively disadvantaged early that he can't get anything done. I still think he's a dangerous threat. I think Verdum takes him as such. I do as well. But to your point, I don't dispute any of these things are real. I just wonder what you want to do about it. That JDS card versus Miocic is a pretty good card. Why ruin it? Why ruin it to fix this? Which, which, which it wouldn't even really fix, necessarily. It wouldn't be doing that much more than what Hunt Verdum is going to do. It'd probably do a little bit more. Not significantly. Not significantly. It's a problem. And then you ruin, of course, what already was going to happen. So you have a, this other set of damage you have to account for. This doesn't make any sense to me. Oh, did I say Joe Lazon versus Nick Diaz? I meant Joe Lazon versus um, uh, Diego Sanchez. Pardon me. Uh, Chuck Mendenhall's open letter to GSP. I read it this morning and agree with about half of it. Yes, the UFC is hurting, but do they really need GSP back that badly? Really? They're going to ask that question on a day like today? Of course they need him back pretty badly. They wouldn't be flying to go see him if they didn't. You got nine pay-per-view main events that have been altered or scrapped in some capacity just in this year alone. Pay-per-view down to like 2005 levels. The Canadian market cooled. They don't have a home for TV yet. And you don't think that getting GSP back to compete is a big deal? True or false? John Jones will break Anderson Silva's record of 10 title defenses. True. Luke Rockhold will beat Vitor Belfort in a rematch. Mm, probably. Uh, Gustafson will be champion before the end of 2016. Uh, false. McGregor will retire undefeated in the UFC. False. Uriah Hall will become a top 10 middleweight. False. Phil Davis will never fight for the title. True. If Donald Cerrone becomes champion, he'll be the first champion to ever defend the belt four times a year. False. Um, another question about Dana White taking a low profile. I don't know. You, you guys, your guess is as good as mine. Mike Chipetta, what do you think about him leaving the industry? Would love to hear you tell a story about his time working with you. Um, Mike's hilarious. Yeah, it sucks that, we're, that we lose Mike. I mean, the problem is, like, you know, where's he going to go, you know? Like, there's not a ton of jobs. There's not a lot of places hiring, especially someone of his level, you know? I mean, there's always, there's always some jobs at the lower end of the totem pole. At the higher end, man, when you lose one of those, there's, like a, there's, there's just not a lot of opportunity. And by the way, like, you know, MMA media, I don't know if you've been paying attention, has definitely contracted. Both the hardcore media itself and then the uh, casual media that covered MMA. They don't cover MMA like they used to. Um, so there's been a contraction in the industry. Not a major one, but a noticeable one. You know, Josh Gross out of the industry. Mike Chiapetta out of the industry. Loretta Hunt, I think, still does some stuff for SI, but not in the way that she was before. And Yeah, man, it's a problem. So it sucks badly that someone of his caliber would be unable to secure employment. But uh, 
I don't know what I don't know what the solution to that would be, except the sport has to grow again, so there's more opportunity, or someone else has to get into the game that currently isn't. Because as it stands, it's just a, there's just no one else. But you know, uh, do I have a funny story about working with him? I don't know if I have a funny one. I just I, I all I can tell you is I had seen him do those NBC things um, on the internet. He used to do these video previews for NBC Sports, and I met him at the Kimbo Slice James Thompson fight. And he was always super cool to me. He always treated me like a peer, which I can't say for everyone else in the industry. Of course, I didn't treat them like peers either. I maybe didn't deserve much. But my point being is Mike Chipetta went out of his way, you know. And I've always been, like from that day forward, I've always been a Mike Chipetta fan. Not just for his work, but for just sort of his, his personal generosity in that way. I hope one day he can find a way to come back. If not, then I hope he can do whatever he does. I hope whatever he does, he makes a ton of money. And has a super rewarding career because he deserves nothing less. And we're worse off for not having him around. Somebody who was willing to hold UFC's feet to the fire. Again, Jose Aldo says UFC athletes deserve a bigger part of the millions. So we went over this again. Luke, how much money do you think Aldo deserves to show and win? However much he can negotiate for. I think workers always get paid what they deserve. <laughs> okay. Uh, you, my friend, have a jaundiced view of labor relations. That is funny. I think workers always get paid what they deserve. Oh, my God. You mean to tell me in an era where CEO pay is at an all-time high proportionally, literally historic highs, and the value that they contribute has not changed, that workers always get paid what they deserve. You, my friend, are a confused person. Um, difference between MMA fans and sports fans. You've mentioned it before that there is a difference between MMA fans and sports fans. And that the MMA fan base is comprised of more digital natives than the general population. I'm curious if you had demographic information to compare, say, MMA fans to general population, MMA fans to traditional sports fans, MMA fans during the tough Brock era versus MMA fans today. Um, I don't have any data that I can certainly give you at this point. A lot of it is sort of anecdotal, although a lot of it has been watching traffic patterns as well, but not in any kind of way where I can sort of drill down at this precise moment into, say, demographic breakdowns, black women, white men, whatever. But um, I'll always look at it this way, that it, 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 sports fans are like one circle, and... MMA fans are, it's like a Venn diagram where they overlap a little bit so that there are people who are sports fans and are MMA fans. And you know what sports fan means can be a fluid definition, but you know, traditionally fans of traditional sports, fans of NBA and NFL and things like that. And they might like some more than others, but you get the idea. They overlap in that way. They are cousins. Combat sports fans, some of the things that appeal to them about MMA, some of those things are the same thing that appeal to sports Traditional sports to sports fans, they, they share that bond, but a lot of it is not the same. A lot of people who watch combat sports do not watch traditional sports and vice versa. They, the universes do have their own Chinese wall a little bit. So there's that. And as, as far as the Ultimate Fighter to Brock Lesnar era, it just had a lot more casuals. I think the casual population has dwindled. John Jones's lack of knockout power. Uh, he has good footwork, elbows, controls the distance well, and one of the best grounded pounds of all time, and very good takedown defense. But are the athletes becoming better and better each year, or would the athletes becoming better and better each year? Do you think he'll need to develop that one punch knockout chance in order to retire undefeated? And perhaps, well, first of all, he's not undefeated. And perhaps this is the thing that could make him a bigger draw. Um, you can't just get knockout power out of anywhere. You can certainly learn to punch better. 
you can develop your technique. You can work on your um, – there's lots of things you can refine in the punching process. But not everyone is going to have the ability to have that one-punch KO shot. And some guys are going to have arm punches and have one-punch KO power. It's a difficult thing to get. But I would say that John Jones is a striking threat, yes. It may be a bit of a volume kind of thing, but he hits you. Uh, he doesn't come at you with conventional attacks. So a lot of the defenses are really exposed. Look at the elbow that saved him in the fourth round against Gustafson, that's, that coming around the back spinning elbow. He, able, he was able to strike Gustafson in a place that he just wasn't able to properly cover and defend for. It's not like he was doing a jab, jab, cross, jab, cross, hook. Right, more conventional attacks, and so he, these guys are more exposed when he hits them, and he hits them with the full force of his of his body turning in that kind of way. So, does he have the traditional knockout power that we think of when we think of Chuck Liddell or other guys who have heavy hands like that? No, not necessarily, but he certainly is a legitimate striking threat. He certainly can do a, a, a lot of damage quickly, and so in that sense, you know, I wouldn't put him on the same level as an Anthony Pettis, but I wouldn't necessarily put him at the bottom of the list of guys I would think of as uh, legitimate striking threats in their own right. And plus, he can hit you in so many distances, you know, up and tight when he was playing handsies with Glover Teixeira and then even Rashad Evans. You know, instead of jabbing Rashad Evans in long range, he let Evans get in close and then popped him with the elbow. I mean, that's crazy creative ways where you're tricking him, you're landing unorthodox strikes, you're exploiting the, the gaps in his defense, you're using your frame for, for your, its maximum benefit. And it's not the same as, you know, just launching a big strike and knocking a guy out, but it's, boy, it's, it's something. Aldo and Connor or, or Mendez and Connor as tough 21 coaches. I'd hate to put the title up on the shelf for that long, given what's been happening, but that wouldn't be the worst idea, especially with uh, Mendez and Connor, man. Those two seem to be going at it, so that should be fun if that happens that way. But everyone is just so sick of the title being on the shelf for so long. And I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. Uh, this one didn't get any recs, but I think it's actually a good question. Michael Richmond versus Nam Fan. Um, this is not one of your subjects in today's headlines, he writes, but how do you see this fight playing out against Nam Fan? Nam is very experienced, but Mike has looked very good. Yeah, since dropping down to Bantamweight, I think he only had the one fight at Bantamweight. But Mike, Mike Richmond, one of the problems that was, you know, was killing me about Mike Richmond was that his attacks seemed very singular, you know. Doesn't use a lot of kickboxing, a little bit of inside leg kicks to set up his punches, but really believes in his hands. And that's good because his hands are lethal, but I wish he would use more of his game. But against Nam Fan, I'm not sure that he needs to. Either way, it's going to be a ridiculous kind of striking bout. I see Nam Fan getting pieced up, but Richmond isn't as durable as Nam. So that's really the issue. It's like Richmond is a better striker than Nam, particularly in the boxing department. But Nam has just got an unbelievable will to continue better on the ground, too. So... Um, that's the kind of fight that doesn't make – I mean, it makes a lot of sense if you know Scott Coker. Not two guys that, you know, Nam Fan is where he is in his career and Mike Richmond is where he is, and, and, and who knows how good Mike Richmond really is. But one of those fights when you match them up together, you have two guys with similar skill sets. One's more powerful and crisper. The other one is more durable, has a bit of a name. Both guys willing to go toe-to-toe in that, in that particular way. They will, they will accommodate each other. If not consciously, then certainly – uh, subconsciously, but they will accommodate each other for fan entertainment in that way. That's going to be a good scrap. Should the MMA media continue to ask Hoist questions regarding current MMA? The game has evolved tremendously since he last took part in MMA, taking fights against boxers, karate guys, kickboxers, and wrestlers who have no knowledge of BJJ. 
He's a pioneer of the sport, but what Hoy says about Brazilians having no strategy and Gracie fighters should only focus on use BJJ in the cage has no relevance to taste. I mean, you can ask him whatever you want. You should take his answers for what they are. You guys are a smart audience. Someone says, who, who are some fighters that you think should receive a step up in competition, and who do you think that would fare well against a higher-level opposition? Um, I'll just name a couple guys who should step up, and they list Jorge Masvidal. That's certainly one. Jorge Masvidal stands first and foremost as a guy who deserves better competition. I was going to clamor for it, but he already got it. Dennis Bermudez and getting Ricardo Lamas. That was one that stood out to me. Um, Steve Miocic is going to get Junior Dos Santos. So there's not a lot of guys out there I'm looking at that are, I'm thinking deserve better and didn't get it. Um, who's the guy that deserves? Uh, yeah, maybe a couple of those. Let's see. There's one more, I think, here. Total title fights between 2013 and 2014. Just for fun, I decided to research 2013 versus 2014 title fights. I found the following. In 2013, there were a total of 19 title fights. 13 title fights with legit draws. Rousey, two of them. Silva, two of them. GSP, two of them. Jones, two of them. Aldo, two of them. Velasquez, two of them. Pettis, one of them. Six without. Bendo, one. DJ, three. And Barral, two. In 2014, there have been 11 title fights completed, five currently scheduled. Nine title fights with legit draws. Aldo, two. He's not a legit draw. Rousey, two. Hendricks, two. He's an okay draw. Jones, one. Wyman, one. Pettis, one. Just off the top of my head, the quality difference is equal to the amount lost by GSP Silva, which was known going into 2014. Therefore, the outcome was predictable and therefore able to have been mitigated. It seems like the UFC buried their head in the sand on this one and didn't create a mitigating strategy, either loading pay-per-view cards, withdrawing non-title fights, or cutting pay-per-views and want to blame the injury bug. The data doesn't support that. Your thoughts? Uh, it supports it a little bit. Because we've now lost Velasquez 1. Um, I have to look at some of the ones we've lost. Aldo is also not a draw, although you've listed him in both of those. So I guess it cancels out. Um, yeah, I'm not the first person to blame. I mean, I think injury is a component, but it's... A, one among a number of other ones. Let's see. Let's do a true-false here, and then we'll get out of here. True-false. Aldo is the greatest defensive mixed martial artist of all time. That's a good question. Boy, he's up there. He is up there. That's a great question. One of the title fights at 181 will get canceled due to injury. God, I'm just going to say false as wishful thinking. Demetrius Johnson will break the all-time UFC title defense record. True, uh, false. 2015's slate of big fights isn't the answer to get all UFC's ailments. True. Kane pulling out of 180 helps Bellator card that night. Maybe. Kane pulling out of 180 does nothing for the World Series of Fighting card that night. True. UFC runs fewer pay-per-views in 2016 than they will in 2015. Fewer over the top through cable, but maybe online they run just as much. Ooh. Threw that little nugget in there. I mean, it's not a nugget. I'm just making stuff up. But I think that might be a case. All right. Look to Twitter one more time. Let's see here. And then we get out. Someone says, Hunt is on his way to Mexico to acclimate to the altitude. Yeah, it takes a long time. It takes a long time. 
and and not so easy. I remember the first week in Bogota is uh, in Colombia is at eight thousand feet or more, and it took me a full week to get over that man. It was brutal. It was brutal. I'm not a world class athlete. I understand, but Mark Hunt's at three hundred pounds, so you get the idea. All right, thank you for joining me. As you may know, we are on Stitcher. We are on SoundCloud. We are on iTunes. Please get out there, subscribe, and leave a positive review. It would mean the world to me. Uh, you can also email me at luke.thomas at sbnation.com. And I have a question for you before you go. We only do these chats once a week. That's a lot of time in between. Are you in favor of me doing 5, 10, 15, 20-minute chats or essays or rants or whatever that I just upload to those feeds? Are you in favor of that? Just to make sure there's more content for you guys. If you are, tweet me, at SBN Luke Thomas, or email me, luke.thomas at sbnation.com. Do you want more content? It'll be, I still do these chats once a week, but in addition to that, I might do irregularly one, two, three more chats a week that are five, 10, 15, or no more than 20 minutes in length. Would you be in favor of that? If so, tweet me, at SBN Luke Thomas, or email me, luke.thomas at sbnation.com. If you have an idea about how to do that best, let me know. I, this is your chat as much as it is mine, and I want to give you more content because I want to keep this more active, but only if you want it. Only if you want me to do something different and shake it up a little bit. So, at SBN Luke Thomas, luke.thomas at sbnation.com. We have overrun our time. Until next time, uh, thank you so much, and stay frosty. Bye, y'all.